Okay. If you have Bibles with you today, please open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week I shared on trusting God from Philippians chapter 3. We took a, a look at the backstory, as it were, of, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I contrasted from his writing there in chapter 3 two different approaches to spiritual life, often referred to as law versus grace. Um, or, as it says more in on the message, following a list of rules versus trusting God. And my emphasis was on this concept of trust. Um, I thought it was summed up well in verse 9 of Philippians 3. And, and of the different translations I looked at, nothing seemed to say it better than the message. And let me just read that verse to you again, just to remind you. Paul writes, I dumped it all in the trash so that I could, be in, so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. We talked about that last week, made some personal applications. I talked about ways that trust can be cultivated. And I thought it was a pretty good message, um, honestly. It's available online at the church website, thebridgelongisland.com. It's free there. Today I want to do something a little bit different. I want to take a look at the cross. I'm not sure if I've preached on the cross since I've been here yet. But I want to take a unique look at the cross and ask the question, is it punishment? Was the cross punishment or was the cross a cure? Punishment or cure? This past week I've been meditating and studying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's been blessing my heart. It's been speaking to me significantly. And um, what most pastors do is they give to you pretty much what God's given to them. Most pastors, when they preach on a Sunday, they're sharing with you, you know, how God's impacted them. And that's what I want to do this week. My message is heavily influenced by the writings of Wayne Jacobson. I like to give credit where credit's due. I love, um, I love his insights. I love how he looks at Scripture through the lens of of the Father's affection. He looks at Scripture through the lens of a loving, heavenly Father. And it, it changes things. It really changes how, how we look at it. And so I want to challenge some common assumptions about the cross today. So the cross, is it punishment or cure? And we'll, we'll, um, we'll take a look at it from 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. And just for the sake of context, I'm going to read... Um, from verse 11 through verse 21. Really interesting in verse 19 today, but again, for the sake of context, this is from the NIV, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning of verse 11. Paul writes, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is, what is seen in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who, should, who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him 
who died for them, was raised again. Verse 16 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The new has come. The old is gone. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's, not counting people's sins against them. And he was, has committed to us the message of recon, reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Lord, I thank you for your word and the power that's in your word. I ask that you would use me today to communicate your word to your people in a way that sets them free. Do that, Lord. So like I said, I'm most interested this morning in verse 19. It's where I meditated. It's the place I landed this week. And it's powerful. It says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Circle the word in. Underline the whole verse. Not counting people's sins against them. I don't know why we don't have bumper stickers that say that. I don't know why don't we have magnets on our refrigerators that say that. That's in the word of God. Not Counting people's sins against them. That's astonishing. That's amazing. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered your life that way? That, that, that's radical. That's a game changer. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Oh man, if I could just have relationships like that with human beings, let alone have a relationship like that with God. Astonishing. Earth-shattering. Blows my mind. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Could you imagine what ministry would look like in America if we couldn't manipulate people with guilt and shame over their sins? Oh my God, churches would close all over the country. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm so nasty. <clears throat> so, I want to take a look at the cross from two different perspectives. Is the cross punishment for sin, or is the cross a cure for sin? makes a difference. I think it makes a significant difference. So, I was raised believing that the justice of God demanded a sacrifice for sin. I'm sure many of you have had the same concept. That a holy and just God could not bear the presence of sin and atoning an atoning sacrifice was demanded. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Yeah. And that to satisfy his need, this need for justice, and this demand of his holiness, God sentenced his son to death, um, a brutal death, death in agony, <clears throat> in crucifixion, as punishment for the sins of all mankind. Bless you. Does that sound unfamiliar to anybody? Does that kind of sound like the story you've heard? That Jesus paid the price so I could get to go free. Right? He paid a debt I couldn't pay. 
pretty good deal on my end. I get off, right? I get a freebie. I get no scot-free. Right? I get mercy. I get grace. And he pays the penalty. Good deal on my end. Not so good deal on Jesus' end. Jesus looks great. He looks heroic. He looks sacrificial. And that's all good. And I think he was heroic. I think it was absolutely sacrificial. <clears throat> but it doesn't make the Father look very good. That concept of the cross doesn't make Papa look good at all. What would it say? <laughs> what does it say about the Father? What would it say about any Father? What would it say about Tom? I'm a Father. For example, let's say you did something to offend me. I'm offended by your behavior. And that in order for me to forgive you, I need to, I need to expend this wrath that I have. And so what I do is I, I, I take this wrath that I have and I, and I spend it, I, I, I express it, I vent it on my son. I'm mad at you because you did something to offend me. And so what I do is I take my son out back and I beat him to death with a baseball bat. How does that sound? And then I come back in, once I've kind of gotten it out of my system, I've expressed this wrath. My son paid the price for you, and I'm, so, so I'm no longer offended with you. And now you and I could be friends. Would you want to be my friend? Would you be a little concerned about having friendship with a father who would treat his son that way? His innocent son. I don't know, it kind of bugs me. That concept of the Heavenly Father, or that view of the cross, maybe never expressed so bluntly or crudely as I just did, kind of lingered in the back of my mind. Would you want to be friends with anyone who would brutally beat his innocent son to death? Or have other people brutally beat his, his innocent son to death? And making his son pay a price that Apparently the father wasn't willing to pay himself. The crucifixion story most often told paints God the Father as an angry, bloodthirsty deity whose appetite for vengeance can only be satisfied by the death of an innocent, the most compassionate and gracious mm -hmm. human being who ever lived. Am I the only one that struggles with that concept? From that perspective, the case could be made that God's not much different than Moloch or Baal or any other false deity that required human sacrifice to satisfy their uncontrollable rage. Something's wrong with this story. Could the same God who asked you and I to forgive without seeking vengeance be requiring of us what he's unwilling to do himself. Right? We're supposed to forgive. We're not supposed to seek vengeance. But this sounds pretty vengeful. If I'm messing with your theology a little bit, if I'm tweaking your brain a little bit this morning, it's exactly what I intended to do. Is God demanding us to be more gracious than he's willing to be? There's something terribly wrong with this story. Many of the Old Testament writers looking forward to the cross as a sacrifice 
They looked forward to the cross as a sacrifice that would satisfy God. And they often used language of a punishment to explain it. But the New Testament sees it very differently. The New Testament writers, looking back to the cross, through the redemption of the cross, see it very differently. They don't see the act of an angry God seeking restitution. But rather, what they see is the self-giving of a loving God to rescue broken humanity. Their picture of the cross doesn't present God as some brutalizing tyrant expending his anger on innocent victims. The New Testament writers look back. But as a loving father who took the devastation of our failures and held it in the consuming power of his love until sin was destroyed. And by that, opened the portal for us to re-engage in a trusting relationship with the God of the universe. The New Testament writers saw the cross not as a sacrifice. Listen to this. The New Testament writers saw the cross not as a sacrifice that God needed in order to love us, but one that we needed in order to be reconciled to him. The New Testament writers saw the cross not as a sacrifice that God needed in order to love us, but one that we needed in order to be reconciled to him. I believe that we have a distorted view of the cross. I believe that most of the church today in America, around the world, I believe they have a distorted view of the cross. And what's worse, because they have a distorted view of the cross, they have a distorted view of the Father. And it impacts our relationship with him. Since Adam's fall, we've come to picture God not as a loving father inviting us to trust him, but as an exacting sovereign who must be appeased. When we start from that vantage point, we miss the purpose, we miss God's purpose of the cross. His plan was not to satisfy some need in himself at his son's expense, but rather to satisfy a need in us at his own expense. It's a world of difference. His plan was not to satisfy some need in himself, his need for justice, his need for holiness, his need for vengeance at his son's expense, but rather to satisfy a need in us at his own expense. So let's take a different view of the cross. What if if we looked at it as a cure? You know, most of us, like I said, have this distorted view of the Father. I mean, am I the only one who grew up as a Christian thinking that God the Father was the mean one and Jesus was the nice one? Um... I can remember as a young Christian having a very hard time interacting or praying to God the Father. Going to Jesus, piece of cake. Going to to the Father, that was tough. I don't know, it kind of had like, maybe I'm the only one, but I kind of had like this good cop, bad cop kind of mindset. The Father was the bad cop, Jesus was the good cop. How many of you guys saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? I loved almost that entire movie. Loved it in the fact that it, had, it deeply impacted me. 
except for one scene. At the crescendo moment where Jesus says it is finished, he actually dies on the cross. And you see that, that, that teardrop fall from heaven? You got that perspective as if a tear of the Father comes from heaven and boom, impacts the earth and then there's the earthquake? I mean, it was a, from a cinematic point of view, it was a great shot. From a theological point of view, it bothers me. What it says to me is that the Father was afar off and was watching at a distance as his son is brutally being beaten to death, and he was separate and apart from it. And I think that's really bad theology. Most of us have had this mindset that the father couldn't look upon sin. He couldn't be in the presence of sinful man. So he turned away from his son at that moment on the cross. I'm deeply bothered by the thought that in some way God was able to separate himself, God the Father was able to separate himself at the cross. That somehow God the Father executed wrath on the Son while standing at some discreet distance. Such thinking not only denies the essence of God's nature, but I think it distorts what happened on the cross. The very nature of God is this. This whole thing, the whole reason for creation, the whole purpose of the incarnation, and the, and, and the purpose of the cross, and the resurrection, and his second coming is this. Relationship. You see, the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoy a level of communion with one another that's beyond our comprehension. It's the perfect circle of love. And the purpose of it all, from the moment of creation, was to invite us into that relationship. That unbroken circle. That fellowship that's never divided. We serve one God. We, be we believe in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Three being one. Always one. From the beginning, one. To this day, one. Never separate. They were not separated on the cross. They were not separated on the cross. I think to believe that denies the very essence and nature of who God is. And it's why we have an understanding of the cross as punishment instead of cure. Brings me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself inside Christ Jesus. I believe the Father was in Christ, like he's always been in Christ, like he's in Christ to this day, and like Christ is in him and the Spirit's in both of them. God didn't send his son to pay a price he wasn't willing to pay. He was inside his son at that moment. And he was reconciling the world to himself inside his son. God's no distant. The father is no distant observer, but a participant. He didn't send Jesus to do what he wasn't willing to do himself. God himself acted through Jesus to bring about our redemption. You know, some have taken Jesus' cry that his father had forsaken him to mean that at the darkest moment the father had turned back on the son. And the explanation I've always heard is that God cannot bear to look on sin. We read in verse 20 is that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin, the Father couldn't look at him. And so, and our explanation of that is that God cannot bear to look on sin. You know, that when our sins were laid on him, God had turned his face away from the Son. But God has never turned his, his face away from sinful humanity. Never. Never, ever. From the beginning. Think about it. When Adam and Eve sinned, who was hiding? Did God turn away from Adam and Eve? No. Adam and Eve were hiding. God was looking for them. He was searching them out. Adam, where are you? If he could look on sinful Adam and Eve, he couldn't look on his son? It, it, it doesn't even hold the weight of logic. He didn't hide from Adam and Eve in the garden. They hid from him. He sought them out. It's not God who can't bear to look on sin, but it's us in our sin who can't bear to look on God. He's not the one who hides. We are. <laughs> Isn't that what happens to you? When you sin. When you're in, the, when you're in the, the throes of it. When you've reached the absolute pinnacle of that sinful moment, whatever that activity is for you. At that moment, do you find yourself running into the arms of a loving God? Or are you looking for whatever your fig leaf is to hide behind? In guilt and shame. I'm looking for fig leaves. When I'm feeling like 10 pounds of sin in a 5 pound bag, I'm looking for a bigger bag. I just want to hide. I'm the one who hides. Guilt and shame make me want to hide. The Father doesn't turn his face from me. His love never changes. He loves me when I'm at my best. He loves me when I'm at my worst. Well, I was yet a sinner. Christ died for us. Right? In my worst moment, he loved me. He doesn't hide. We hide. God is powerful enough to look on sin and not be tainted by it. He's always done so. And he did so at the cross. He didn't just deal with our sins, but by the very nature... Excuse me. He didn't just deal with our sins, but with the very nature of sin itself... By allowing sin to touch his personhood through the Son, he would be able to prevail in himself over that which we were powerless to fight. Say it another way. Through the physical body of Jesus, sin came face to face with the power of God. And as we'll see, God prevailed over sin completely. So here's a paradigm shift. Think about... The cross is a cure instead of punishment. Do you have a box, do you have a theological box to, to think of sin as a disease? Right? Maybe we've even heard that analogy before. Whether sin were a disease, think of sin as cancer. And think of the wrath of God as the cure, the treatment, the antidote, the chemotherapy, as it were. To kill that cancer. The wrath or the chemo isn't focused against Tom, but the cancer that's in Tom. 
the chemo, the wrath, is actually in my defense. It's on my side. It's for me. In this sense, the wrath of God is his passionate love for Tom. And his hatred for the cancer of sin. Now, the purpose of chemotherapy, I know all too personally, is to kill the cancer before it kills the patient, right? I'm going to give you as much chemotherapy as they can to kill the cancer before it actually takes the life of the cancer patient. It's a careful balancing act of brutal poison. Okay, I'm trying to give you a paradigm shift here. God the Father in Christ, God the Father in Christ, took the treatment in our place. Because he knew that the cure for sin, that the chemo for the cancer, would have killed us before it would have killed the cancer of sin. That's the problem with some patients who have an advanced form of cancer. They have something that will kill the cancer, but the patient is so sick, the patient's so weak, that they cannot endure the treatment. If they were to give them the full weight, the full dose of treatment, they would die before the cancer would be eradicated. That's the dilemma. That's the need for the cross. The cure for sin is so powerful that as human beings, we never could have endured the treatment before it would take us out. passion had to cure our sin but it would overwhelm us before the work was done only God himself could endure the treatment of our healing only God could endure the treatment that our brokenness demanded he took our place right the scripture says that the word became flesh he became one of us He embraced our disease and became sin itself, 2 Corinthians 5 says. And then he drank the antidote that would consume sin in his own body. Now that's substitutionary atonement. He took our place because he was the only one that could endure the cure. Now I've heard it said that most crucifixions would take some 30 hours to kill a human being. It was a slow form of torture. Maybe you've heard different hours. It took many, many hours, many more hours than Jesus hung on the cross. He died in like some six hours. And sometimes this bothered me. I'm thinking, man, Jesus was pretty cool. He was tough. He was big. He hung out with these fishermen. He was a carpenter. He couldn't, he couldn't hang in there as long as a, a regular human being could. On the cross, what's up with that? I mean, he was brutally beaten, but he was the only one that ever gotten a beating like that at the hands of the Romans. Only six hours? What if we look at it differently? How long do you think you or I would last in the presence of the full wrath of God? One second? A nanosecond. <laughs> Less than that, right? Before you could blink your eye, We'd be, we'd be dust. 
I think those six hours are showing a toughness, an enduring ability in Christ that's beyond anything we can imagine. I think he took the full dosage of chemo. He took the full passionate love of God, the full wrath of God against sin. And he hung in there longer than any of us ever possibly could have. Until it was completely eradicated. God's purpose on the cross was not to, def- to defend His holiness. His holiness doesn't need to be defended. It's perfect. He didn't have to do it by punishing Jesus instead of us. The purpose of the cross was to, de- was to-, to destroy sin in the only vessel that could hold it. Until, in God's passion, sin was completely destroyed. So perhaps we need to rethink the crucifixion. God was not there brutalizing his son as retribution for our failures, but he was loving us through the son in a way that would set us free. In a way that would set us free to know him. In a way that would transform us to be like him. Now that's a God worth knowing. So why does this matter? Am I just making some fine theological point because this is what pastors like to do? I think this is profoundly significant. I think it matters huge. And for this reason, I don't want to be sons, I don't want to be friends with someone who beats his son to death. I don't want to be friends with somebody who does that. But as someone who's gone through chemo twice, I'd, I'd forever be friends with someone who would take chemo in my place. Somebody wants to sit there all those hours, go through all that treatment, feel as crummy as I did because they love me. And then I would get better as a result. I'll forever be friends with that person. That person beats his son to death just so that he can endure being in my presence. I don't want to know that person. I don't trust that person. I can't trust that person. The one who would take the chemo for me, I would trust them with everything. I'll give them my whole bank account. I'll give them the keys to my house. I'll let them watch my kids. I'll trust that person. It's the issue of relationship. It's the life and death, black and white, opposite, polar opposite concerns, trust. How will you trust him? Religion sees the cross as punishment. Relationship sees it as a cure for disease that was killing us. Our Heavenly Father loves us lavishly and extravagantly. I pray you can see that differently today. With that in mind, think about 2 Corinthians 5.19 once again. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. I can communicate that message. I go around the world talking about that message. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always been one. They share perfect communion this perfect communion of love. They always have, they always will. And by the cross, we've been welcomed into that loving relationship. And this scene, the cross is a cure instead of punishment, radically changes our concept of Christianity. And it changes this way, because if the father can mistreat his son, then I can mistreat you. If the father is justified in mistreating his son, then I as the pastor, I can brutalize you. 
If the father could treat his son so badly, being separate from it, and demand things of the son that he's not willing to do himself, then I, as pastor of the church, I can demand things of you that I won't require of myself. I can put expectations on you that I have no intention of personally fulfilling. If the father could treat the son so poorly, I can treat you any way I want to. I can manipulate you. I can shame you. I can put guilt on you. If the father's harsh, then pastors and prophets and ministers can be harsh. They can excuse away their harshness. But if the father loves lavishly and extravagantly, if the father is in Christ taking the hit himself, paying the price himself, because he knows that only his love and his strength as God can endure the treatment for our sin, he's the only one who can take the medicine, who can take the cure, and it changes how I look at faith. It changes how I look at Christianity. It changes how I look at ministry. He loves lavishly and extravagantly, then my call is to love lavishly and extravagantly. And I'm so better equipped to do it because I know the depth and degree of his lavish, extravagant love for me. I've tasted of that. I've experienced it personally. It's my joy and delight to treat you that way. It changes everything. That paradigm shift changes absolutely everything. It's profoundly significant and important. So let's pray. Father, I feel like um, I feel like I've barely been able to communicate the profound significance of this paradigm shift. You know all things. Lord, would you open our eyes? Lord, I pray that we would know the truth and that it set us free. Set us free from religion. Set us free from guilt and shame. Lord, mostly, Father God, set us free from a misconception of who you are. Lord, we've thought so poorly of you. We didn't understand. I pray that we would know you as you are and that knowing you would set us free. Lord, I pray that you would give us capacity to comprehend how lavishly you love us, how extravagantly you love us, how kind you are, how merciful you are. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. It's truly a God-sized thing. Lord, I thank you for my friends. I ask that you would bless them today. I ask for an increase of your presence in their lives and that they would have all the benefits of your presence. I ask that you be merciful and gracious to them. Bless their families. I pray for the Briggs Long Island as a community. I thank you for the plan that you have for us, for your purposes for us, oh God. Pray, Lord, that you make a way where there seems to be no way right now. That you open doors that seem closed. I ask that you bless us and your provision would be on us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have an awesome day today. I'll see you next Sunday.